You know, the one thing we can all agree on is that uh, expectations, especially unrealistic expectations, are hard to deal with. The problem is none of us seem to agree on what realistic expectations actually are. And so I have a question for you. What is your family's defining values and expectations? However you want to define that question. Like growing up, what was, what was something that this is something our family valued? And so these were the expectations we had of one another. And if you're extroverted and want to shout that answer out, I'd be happy to listen. Or if you want to talk to the people next to you, uh, I'd welcome that. But I'm, I'm just curious. Does that question even make sense? What, growing up, Rick, what, what, what were some of your family values? Like, what expectations did you have of one another? Because in this family, this is how we behaved. This is how we acted. This is something we cared about. Honesty. Honesty? Mm. And then, and then what, was that like, we, we were very kind with our honest words, or you just, you, oh no, okay, okay. Just spoke bluntly, but we... We're going to tell the truth, like it or not, like you or not. Okay. All right. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Anyone else want to uh, venture out here? Oh, Thanksgiving and Christmas is always with us and not with the in-laws. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I can. There's, there's some values. There's some expectations there. And in my family growing up, especially on my mom's side, there was this, this value of the extended family. That we, we were involved in each other's lives, that we regularly visited each other. So growing up, I thought vacations were something that you took to go see family out of state. Was there any other kind ever? I didn't know. And that at every significant moment along your life, not only would your parents and, and siblings be there, but your extended family would be as well. Whether that was a graduation or a wedding, family showed up and family helped. And that was, that was the clear expectation and uh, don't cross those lines. Like be there, be there. Now, my grandfather uh, passed away Thanksgiving 2020. I was going to say last year, but I've had to change that now. Um, and before he passed, as um, his health was declining, when we get together, he would just regularly tell us as a family how grateful he was that we would gather together. Many of his friends, you know, they had kids or grandkids that didn't want anything to do with them. And so he tried to pass on to us the value uh, of family, uh, of getting together. And his hope and his prayer for us was that after he was gone, we would continue to live out this family value. We'd continue to live out of these expectations with one another, even though the champion of the cause, so to speak, was no longer around. And when we come to the Bible, we actually see that happen multiple times. As, as a leader in Israel is going to retire or pass away, trying to pass on the, the values and the expectations to the people who will come afterwards. So in the book of Deuteronomy, basically the entire book is one long speech from the leader of Israel, Moses, telling the people of Israel, when I'm gone, don't forget who your God is. Don't forget what he's done for you. Love him. And he's going to bless you and take care of you. And, and if you do forget, uh, 
these are some of the consequences that you can expect to face. And when Moses passed away, his successor, Joshua, did the same thing. At the end of Joshua's life, Joshua chapter 23 and 24, he summons the leaders, he summons all Israel, and he says, all right, here's what I want to pass on to you. Here, here's the values. I hope you will continue to serve the Lord and trust him because all of his good promises have come true for you. He has been a faithful God to you. Now be a faithful people. And even in the book of Luke and Acts, where we're going to be this morning, um, in our first volume, Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. Like, hey guys, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. So here's what I want to pass on to you so that you're ready for it. And after Jesus' death and burial, resurrection, um, there's 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And he's again, appearing to his disciples, preparing them for life when he's gone. And this morning, we are going to see that pattern happen again. As a missionary by the name of Paul is going to pass on to the churches that he planted his values, the values of, of a Jesus following family and his expectations of them, uh, which were for them to hear and also for us now to receive thousands of years later. And so we read, this is Acts chapter 20. If you have a Bible, feel free to open it up. When the uproar, the, the riot that occurred in Ephesus had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye, and he set out for Macedonia. And he traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and he finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed for three months. And because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. All right, quick geography lesson. I know it's hard to see uh, in this room with the lights, but... So he's here in Ephesus, and he traveled over to Macedonia and down into Achaia, or Greece. And from there, he had planned to take a boat to Syria. And instead, he goes all the way back up and through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And these are men who have accompanied him on his travels, and they're from all these different places that Paul has planted churches in his former travels. And these men went on ahead, and they waited for us at Troas. Luke, our narrator, is part of this story. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later, we joined the others at Troas, where we stayed for a week. And on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. It's the first mention of Sundays being a time to gather together with the Lord's people um, in the New Testament. And Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. And there are many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. And seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus. His name means lucky, <laughs> who was sinking into a deep Sleep, as Paul talked, on and on. Some of you guys can relate to that, can't you? I spent half my life falling asleep in church. No judgment here. So, uh, so I get it. And when he was sound asleep, he, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him and said, don't be alarmed. He's alive. And so then he went upstairs again, 
broke bread and ate, and after talking (laughs) until daylight, then he left. And the people took the young man home alive, and they were greatly comforted. And because he survived, we all laugh at him. And for thousands of years, we jokingly refer to Eutychus, to people like me who used to fall asleep all the time um, as people talked. So I will not drone on and on as much as Paul. And if you need a nap, you go ahead and take it. Sleep is important. Now, we went on ahead to the ship and we sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and we went on to Mytilene. And the next day we sailed from there and arrived at Chios. And the day after that, we crossed over to um, Samos. And the following day, we arrived at Miletus. All right, the secret, if you ever have to read a bunch of biblical names, is you just go for it. Because I have no idea how to actually pronounce these either. (laughs) And Paul decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So there's there's 50 days between Passover and the day of Pentecost. He has about seven weeks to make this journey, and that's what he's going for. And uh, just, again, to kind of show you on the map, they're just making these little one-day sailing uh, trips. And instead of going into Ephesus, he goes down to Miletus. It's about 30 miles south. And to us, it doesn't mean much, but we could just easily say that he got on a Greyhound bus from Kansas City and went to Salt Lake and from Salt Lake up to Boise and from Boise over to Portland and then from Portland up to Seattle or something like that. And we're like, oh, okay. But this is in modern day Turkey, so we have no idea. Um, and from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when he arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived? <laughs> Sorry, let me change that. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jewish opponents. I wasn't proud, but I was here for Jesus and I stood my ground in the midst of hardship. And you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. That's what I've done. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem and I don't know what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Paul's on a mission. He has a job from Jesus and he's going to do it to testify to everyone the good news of the grace of God. And his life is not too dear a price to pay if he can just accomplish that. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He's saying goodbye. So therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. (laughs) I brought you the message of Jesus, and if it hasn't stuck, it's your own fault. But I'm innocent. I've done my duty, and now he's going to say, now it's time for you to do yours. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Jesus has died for these people. God has given his son in order that they may live. Take care of that. They're valuable. And I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you. And they're not going to spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, among all those who are holy or being made holy. It's this really short little sentence where Paul is basically saying this word about God's grace, that though none of us deserved it and none of us have lived the exemplary life, God has chosen to love us just because that's the kind of God he is. And he's welcomed us to repent and receive forgiveness. And he wants to adopt us into his family. And the entire you know, Hebrew scriptures, like Genesis through Malachi, talking about the inheritance of God's people, God's word of grace can, can give you all of that. And so I commit you to it. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. I set you an example to follow. I've imparted to you the family of God's values and expectations. And now I'm going to leave you and I expect you to continue to live them out. I've done my job. Now it's time for you guys to do yours. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down and with all of them, and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. And what grieved them most was that his statement that they would never see his face again. Clearly, they, they loved one another very much and they accompanied him to the ship. And after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara and we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. And after sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria and we landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. So again, went from Miletus just down here and hopped on a boat and crossed over there. And we sought out the disciples there and we stayed with them seven days. And, though, and through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to, on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and we continued on our way. And all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. And after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. And we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemaeus. And there we greeted the brothers and sisters and we stayed with them for a day. And leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Do you guys remember him from chapter eight? That's where he ended up, Caesarea, one of the seven. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So again, they just went down the coast uh, towards Israel. And after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt and then he tied his own hands and feet with it. And he said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Oh, yikes. And when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said the Lord's will be done. It's not the main point of our story, but you have to, you have to acknowledge the tension that the Spirit of God seems to have told Paul, go and do something. In every city, he's, he's feeling compelled to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to go and you're going to experience suffering. And then in light of that, the Spirit of God is telling other people to confront Paul and say, don't go to Jerusalem. And for some reason in the will of God, at times, he sees fit that believers would take opposite stands on a particular point of view. So as I heard one person say, it's very possible that God's spirit might call some people to go fight in a war and other people to go protest against it, perhaps. I don't know. There, there's, a, there's a tension there that we have, to, we have to wrestle with as a people of God. And they end up at the end saying, the Lord's will be done. And after this, we started on our way to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and they brought us to uh, the house of Nathan, where we were to stay. And he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. And uh, next week, actually in two weeks, we'll resume the story of Paul in Jerusalem now. There's a lot of goodbyes that just happened. As Paul said, I encourage church after church. And we have that, that large speech in Ephesus. But something I, I really realized um, and just want to remind us all of is this passage, again, just exemplifies the main point of Luke and Acts as we've been going through these two volumes. The God the Father sent his promised Messiah, Jesus, to save all who follow him. We saw that in, in the Gospel of Luke. We saw Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all God's good promises, coming and saving us by dying for our sins and calling us to follow him. And then empowers us with the Holy Spirit so that we can live like him. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has come and the disciples went from kind of sometimes looking like Jesus to looking like Jesus a whole lot. And all of a sudden here, Paul is just, <laughs> the guy looks like Jesus. I mean, one, he raised Eutychus, the lucky guy from the dead, just like Peter before him and Jesus before him. But, but also there's a number of, uh, of overlaps. I just want to point out for one, both Paul and Jesus say goodbye to the disciples. Uh, secondly, both of these happen around the festival of unleavened bread. Jesus will die at Passover. Um, and then Paul is trying to, between Passover and Pentecost, make it to Jerusalem. So uh, there's that. Both of them have stories of the upstairs room. It's where Paul was teaching. It's where Jesus met with the 12. And, and then you have this last time with the 12. It's really clear with Jesus. He met with the 12 apostles and, and gave them the communion ceremony. We're going to be celebrating that later on today. Um, and with Paul, this is a little bit implicit, and we're not entirely sure, but I wanted to at least suggest that this could be the case. Um, 
Paul, when he entered into the town of Ephesus, met around a dozen men who had received the baptism of John, and he told them about Jesus, and he baptized them in the name of Jesus, and they received the Holy Spirit. So then he started a church in Ephesus, and for three years, taught people. And at the end of three years, he's, he's back, and he's calling the Ephesian elders to come meet with him. And if we were going to ask the question, like, who, who were these overseers of the church in Ephesus? It, I, I just wouldn't be surprised if there was about a dozen of them who showed up. Again, it's not implicit, but I thought it worth mentioning. Um, both Paul and Jesus are breaking bread. Both Paul and Jesus, as they are leaving, are warning these people that there's a betrayer among them. So Jesus, he says, you know, one of you will betray me talking of Judas, Paul to these elders, he says, even from your own midst, men will arise who are going to lead God's people astray. And they're both going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die. Paul is going at least to be (laughs) bound and arrested, and he's willing to die. Both Paul and Jesus give the disciples their own life as an example. So Jesus, he tells his disciples, you know, the kings of the, of the Gentiles, they lord it. They lord the power over one another. That's not how it's to be around you. He who would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all, because I, your Lord and master, am among you as one who serves. Look at me, Jesus says, and then go and do likewise. So Paul tells the Ephesian elders, you guys know how I was with you the whole time I served the Lord You know these hands of mine provided for my own needs. I was the example of a servant among you, demonstrating the life of Christ, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. So go and do likewise. And both both of them have stories of kneeling and praying, Jesus in the garden, Paul on the beach with the disciples. Um, Twice you have God's will be done. Jesus praying, Lord, let this, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And the disciples at the end saying to Paul, all right, the Lord's will be done. And then you have the story of people falling asleep when they shouldn't. The disciples of Jesus were supposed to be awake in the garden praying. Instead, they took a nap and Eutychus, the lucky guy, uh, fell out a window because he fell asleep when he should have been paying attention to Paul. Just a little bit of overlap where Paul is kind of, you know, looking like Jesus today. But I think in light of all this, in, uh, in the example and in, in the farewell speech that Paul is giving, again, he is commending us to, to take on family values, to be like Jesus in this way. And if I was going to summarize what he's saying, I'd, I'd probably phrase it something like that. In this family, we give it our all because God gave us his all. In this family, we give it our all. We give everything. We don't hold back because God gave us his all. And we need that last clause there because if I don't put that bottom, sent, that bottom line on this slide, it turns into a not the most motivating New Year's Eve resolution talk you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> Just, you know, buck up and try harder and do better. Thanks. I... I need that message too, so much right now. Uh, No, 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 because God gave us all, because God has purchased you and these people with his own blood, because God in his word of grace has given us the entire inheritance of the saints, 
of his holy people. All God's good promises are coming true in and through Jesus, who as our Lord and King gave his life for us and died for us. And now as the ascended Lord and King of the universe shares all that is his with us, there is nothing that God has held back in order to save you, in order to save me. And if God held nothing back, then I don't need to either in service to him. It's the example that Paul gave. So what this means for us is that we believe that God gave everything for us. We, we got to start there. We got to start there with, with the word of grace that says, hey, guys, you know what? Um, it doesn't matter what kind of life that you've lived. Whether you're, you know, uh, clean, sober, and have a great reputation, or, may, or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, it, it really doesn't matter. You are all enemies of God, each of you. We've all ran away from him. We've wanted nothing to do with him. And yet, when we least deserved it, he gave, he gave his blood for our sake to rescue us and to redeem us and to call us to relationship with himself. And so he offers us a gift, not only to be forgiven, not only to be, you know, have our, our, the slate wiped clean, but to now become part of his family, to now be people who will be like number one recipients of all of his goodness for all time. You want to be part of that, right? He loves us. And so out of this love, we repent, which doesn't just mean that we stop doing wrong things. It means that we come to him and live life with him and in, in line with what he says is important. And we trust in Jesus. Why wouldn't we trust this guy? He died for our sake and then was raised from the dead for our redemption and salvation. And we joined his family. And then we have in this family very, very high expectations. <laughs> you would not believe the amount of expectations that we have of God and then of our leaders and, and, and then maybe of, of one another, but of God first. I have incredible expectations of God because he's, he's made some pretty big promises like, I'm going to take care of your needs. You don't have to worry. I'm going to save you. You're going to be forever with me in, in paradise. I have good things in store for you. I'm going to make you like my son, Jesus. And over and over and over again. What, what do we expect of God? Glory, honor, riches, immortality, a home, <laughs> purpose, meaning, identity. Like every good thing we can possibly imagine, he said he's going to provide. So, all right. So my expectations of God keeping his promises are crazy high. That's fair. I don't, I don't think my expectations are actually high enough um, with him. So we'll see. I have stuff to learn. But in light of what God has done, in light of what Jesus has done, we should have high expectations of our leaders. So Sterling Clark, I'm looking at you. Uh, this next part is for you and me in their presence, all right? Because as, as leaders of God's people, we are here to serve, to serve the Lord and to serve other people always. Jesus is the standard. You guys can pray for us. I appreciate that. We're here to serve. The example that Paul gives is that he, he loves and he cares for these people that God, God gave everything for. 
So he doesn't stop working. He works day and night. He's working hard to serve. He's willing to risk it all, to give it all for Jesus. He tackles obstacles. He faces hardships. Well, one of the words he uses is he says, I, like, I held nothing back. Um, some of your Bible translations will say, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And it's the same term that's used in Deuteronomy when Moses is talking to the judges of the people of Israel. He says, basically, you know, there's some, some people in this world are kind of scary, they're, they're important, they're rich, they're powerful. And when it comes time for you to render a just verdict, you might be intimidated by these people, but you are not to be. Do not shrink back from giving true justice. Don't be scared of people. You're serving the Lord. And so we are called to not shrink back from the word of God and from his grace. We're called to serve you. And we're called to watch out for you, to guard you to look out for anyone who's trying to get stuff for themselves because it's contrary to the gospel and it's bad for the church. If we are here and you guys see us make the turn of trying to get followers for ourselves, then watch out, look out. We come as wolves in sheep's clothing. Like the, the people that should be in charge of the church are the people who serve it, who sacrifice for it, who are humble, and who are all about Jesus. Sterling, this is for us. We have to, this is our example. And so if you want, if you're interested in being in the leadership of the church, the number one quality we're looking for is, do you care and love these people? And do you care more about them than about yourself? Are you here for a following? <laughs> uh, that's not going to go well. Are you here for their sake? Okay, okay. And our job is to equip others so that they can do what we do, to try to regularly work ourselves out of a job, to be like Paul, to pass on these family values to the next generation. Because I don't know what the future holds, but in an ideal world, I might have 40 years, maybe, before I'm out. Maybe 50. So I, I have to pass this on. There will be other leaders. There'll be other people who need to hear this message. There's another generation that's coming and one day we're going to be gone. What are we passing on to the next generation? We have a job to do from God. Paul gave it his all. He completed the work that God had called him to do. Well, we do likewise. So for all of us, when we make a commitment, maybe a New Year's resolution in light of what God's done, that we're going to follow Jesus no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter the pain, no matter the opposition, well, because Jesus has given everything for us. And only because Jesus has given everything for us. And so I'd invite you, even this morning, to live out of the grace of God, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among the saints. So I've got a question. Oh, sorry. First, I have a quote. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, there's this great movement in Christianity. I don't know if you guys have heard of the Moravians or not. But it was led by a guy named Nicholas Zinzendorf, actually Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, who was cool simply by the fact that his name is awesome. But, but in a letter, he wrote to some missionaries uh, some, some pretty strong words. He says, remember, you must never use your position to lord it over the heathen, people who don't believe in Jesus. You must never lord your position over them. Instead, you must humble yourself and earn their respect through your own quiet faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. 
Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinkers and blind yourself to every danger and to every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. Or as it's more commonly quoted, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Amen. Amen. It's hard. It's, it's hard words. And, it, and it's not quite true. It's not quite true, but it's almost true. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. Be forgotten by men. Be forgotten by people. Be forgotten by the cities and the nations that you once served. I remember uh, talking to a missionary. He was walking in, in some, you know, over in Eastern Asia, just walking around in the mountains. And he came across this little grave site and he asked his local visitor, like, who's that? And they're like, oh, that's someone who came to tell us about Jesus a hundred years ago. There's no name. <laughs> There's no memory of this person. They came, they preached the gospel, they died, they were forgotten. But here's the thing. It's not true of God. God never forgets. There's no tear that we will ever shed that he doesn't see. There's no pain that we will ever bear that he's not aware of. There is no sacrifice that we will ever give that he will not repay a hundredfold because he never forgets his own. And so when we give it our all, we need to know that he loves us, that he has given everything for us and that it's worth it. That Jesus is worth it. And so this morning, I would invite you to think about what your job is from the Lord. We all have different ones. For Sterling and I, we have a job to oversee and, and guard this church. But if you are a parent, you have a job from God. It involves your kids to love them, to serve them, to instruct them in the ways of life, in the ways of the Lord. If you're a spouse, guess what? You have a job from God to model Jesus to one another. If you are a neighbor <laughs> or, or an employee, guess what? You have a job from God to be honest in your work and to be an example of Jesus to the people around you. And some of you have jobs that God has yet to give you. And whatever it is this morning, I'm inviting you to make the change. What would, what would in light of what God has done, giving it, are all look like. I know when I was uh, working for a medical company here in, in Portland, a couple times I'd show up going, today I want to rock my job. It didn't generally stick, but sometimes for a day it made a difference. And as most things in life, the more often we, we make the attempt, the more common it becomes. And so I just invite you guys today to meditate upon the goodness and grace of God and all that he's given for us. And then in light of it to say, I want to do this Jesus' way. I want to give this my everything. Because God notices and God cares. And he has a plan <laughs> to bring us home into his family and he has an inheritance for us that we can't possibly imagine. So what's a change to make today in the next 24 hours? For me, I'm going to go home and, and Karen and I are preparing for a baby that's coming sometime in the next four and a half weeks at any day. 
I get to be here today. Didn't come last night. Yes. All right. Um, in this afternoon, I get to try to turn my attention to like, how do I, and we'll certainly kind of the question, like, how do we help you guys walk towards Jesus? How do we model our lives? How do we serve this church? Um, those are some of the questions that I'm going to be asking. And what would, what would giving this my all look like? Still not sure. Still working on that. But I invite you to uh, consider the same question. Because it's the family way. It's the family values. We could say it's the family expectations. That we give it our all. Because God gave it his all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious, uh, gracious and good. God, Dad, you're amazing. You have given us so much uh, for us, we don't deserve it. Um, and what, what faint echoes we have heard of your goodness and your grace. Father, I'm looking forward to the day when we uh, will know you better. And you'll see your son um, in all his glory and be found to be like him. God, I'm looking for the, forward to the day when you have redeemed the earth and there's no more pain and brokenness and injustice and hurt. And until that time, Father, will you help us to trust you? To believe that you are the good God who's going to provide for all, all our needs so we don't need to be stingy and we can be generous. That you are the God who has loved us and graced us when we least deserve it. And so we can love and bless and, and serve other people when they least deserve it too. Father, you help us to know that you have um, blessed us by giving us stuff to do here. In the name of Jesus, will you help us to do that to the fullest of our abilities? And Father, will you help us to do it all, um, not by strength of, of will or moral fortitude, but simply by a deep and abiding awareness of how loved we are and how much you've given us. And so Father, may humility be the name of the game and may service uh, be the standard by which we measure ourselves. And Father, would you bless this community now and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen.